Hello. This is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome to We Earth Radio. This is your host, Michael Stone, and I'm really excited about my guest today. We're going to be talking about found in transition, a mother's evolution during her child's gender change. And before I start the interview, I just want to talk a little bit because this is a fairly new show in the Kootenai area. I try to bring shows to you that will stretch beyond your belief system and to create greater connection in the world. That's really part of what we're doing here. And and so I want to introduce you to Paria Hasuri, and she is the author of this book, Found in Transition, a pediatrician. She's a mother of three and a transgender rights activist. Her essays have been published in the New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times, Huffington Post, and Women's Running Magazine. Paria, welcome to We Earth Radio. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Well, I'm so excited about it. I I think before we talk about your daughter. I want to talk about your early upbringing because I think that has a lot to do with the story and Mm -hmm. how this unfolded for you. So you were born in the States, but you spent the first, what, decade in Iran? Yes, I was I was born in the U.S. in 1973. But when I was while my father was doing his uh, residency here and when I was about two to three years old, my parents moved back to Iran. And then we came back to the States in 1983 when I was 10 years old. So you were in Iranian schools, you spoke Farsi, and then the whole upheaval and the revolution happened around that time. How was that as a child? What happened there for you and your family? Yeah. I mean, my parents were not intending to come back to the U.S., but the Islamic revolution is what caused them to to leave. And and really, that was because once the Islamic revolution happened and the Iran-Iraq war started, you know, the state of education started to deteriorate and, and particularly for women. The way college works in Iran is is completely different. You sort of apply to college within like specific track right from high school. So you apply almost directly to like a medical track or an engineering track, particularly after the Islamic revolution and the war, you know, those sort of more professional and scientific tracks were prioritized for men. You know, women were put more into like, I don't know, literature or or teaching or things that were sort of not considered as important, I guess, not fields where like the income potential is as high or or whatever you, you know, you want to call it. And so, you know, my parents, they had three daughters and they didn't want there to be any sort of limits on, 
our education. And obviously, even just, you know, with the Islamic revolution, I mean, my mom was a teacher, and she refused to wear like the hijab in the classroom. And so they, you know, she got fired eventually, you know, all all these sort of restrictions is what caused them to come here. Were you the middle sister? Which one were you? I was the middle sister. When we moved here, I was, uh, we initially moved to Madison, Wisconsin for a year. And that's because my mom had a sister who lived there. So we moved there. And my father actually came about nine months later. First, my mom and I came with my sisters. And then my father was you know, look for a job and uh, find a job that would give him a J-1 visa. And then he, he got a job in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So after a year, we moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And that's really where I spent my formative years of sixth grade through, you know, high school and, and undergraduate and medical school. And that's kind of where I consider my hometown, I would say, is Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We moved to Los Angeles about uh, maybe 14, 14, 15 years ago. Okay, so three Iranian girls in Pittsburgh. How was your English? My English was okay. I mean, I came here, I knew English because my father actually always practiced English with us, even in in Iran. But I had a very thick accent when I came, but I could speak and I was fluent, but I, I just had a thick accent when we came here. So at least I could speak the language. But you went into the school system. Were you in public school or private school? A public school system, yes. Public school system, three Iranian girls in the middle of a hostage crisis and a revolution. Yes. yes. Tell us about that. I would say that my, our, my first year in, in Madison, Wisconsin, I think that was the worst year of my life. Um, yeah. You know, and if I, if I think back, I mean, I was getting bullied at school at almost every day during fifth grade. When we were living in Iran, I had this like fantasy. Once I found out we were moving to America, (laughs) I had this fantasy of what America was going to be like and that I was going to have just this like incredible free life in, in, in the U S and, and also like dreamed about little little kid things like an excess of, you know, Kit Kat bars and, mm-hmm. and, and, and toys and friends and, and freedom and not having to wear a headscarf, which I'd had to wear for third and fourth grade in Iran and, you know, came to the U S and, you know, left a very comfortable upper middle-class life came to the U S and, you know, we were in a two bedroom apartment in Madison and I was getting bullied at school every day. And I had, no friends, no family. And it was the worst year of my life. And I begged my parents so many times for us to go back to Iran. And now when I think about what I put them through, I mean, that had to be really hard for them. Obviously, it was really hard for them to come here. And then to watch their kid, you know, cry every day begging to go back. I mean, it's really difficult for a parent. Talk about being bullied. What, what, when you say bullied, yeah. can you be more specific about that? Most of my bullying was like in the classroom. I was seated towards the back of the classroom and I would get like spitballs coming at me daily. And I would get, you know, and they would like, I was surrounded by a group of boys and they would just whisper things like, go back to where you came from, or you're ugly, or you're dirty, or you're a terrorist, or like spitballs. Like I can still feel the sensation of 
of trying to discreetly remove spitballs from my hair while I'm sitting in class and hoping that other kids who weren't doing it weren't noticing that I'm doing it. What's interesting to me is that I don't remember my fifth grade teacher. I just think, how is it possible that my fifth grade teacher wasn't aware of what was happening? I don't know, but no one helped me in that year. You know, nobody, I feel like my fifth grade teacher must have been somewhat aware that this was happening in the back of his, his or her. I don't even remember my fifth grade teacher. (laughs) You know, it's such a, was such a traumatizing year for me, but it wasn't that it just happened like three times. It happened almost daily for an entire year. So the teacher had to be somewhat aware that this was happening in the back of their classroom and, you know, not helped me. That's, I think, what's really sad about it. Yeah. And of course, now as a pediatrician, you know that that kind of trauma causes dissociation and fragmented senses of self. And then the one thing that you always wanted was to be a mother. Where did that come from? How did you know from such an early age that all you really wanted to do was be a mother? You know, I don't know. I've tried to figure out why. I mean, from when, when we were living in Iran and, you know, before we even came to the U.S., I mean, I always like to play house and I always like to be the mother. And I, I don't know where it came from, but it was all I ever wanted to be was a mother. And I think that grew, you know, stronger and stronger <laughs> as I got older. And then, you know, once, of course, I had my experience with the bullying, you know, which really caused me to sort of be lonely and isolated for the rest of my sort of middle school and, and high school years. I was had this very singular focus of I was going to be a mother and I was going to create my own family in America. And my kids were going to live somewhere diverse and they were going to have everything I didn't have. And so you went to college and things changed a little bit and you meant back. Were you kind of in an Iranian community or in college, did you really get connected with many other people and different, different life in college or was yeah. similar? Uh, I think, you know, a little bit of both. I had, uh, I had a community of Iranian friends in college. Um, and after that, but I also had, you know, started to, for the first time, really make not just American friends, but sort of a di- diverse friends, I would say, I had friends of different, you know, different immigrant, you know, backgrounds. So like I had a lot of friends who were Indian or I had a lot of brown American friends, you know, um, sort of because, again, there was just a little bit more of a sense of uh, identity and shared experience. And you met Babak and he was in medical school. What tell us about your getting together with an Iranian man? Yeah, I mean, I think... I think this was something I always, I think I always thought that I would end up marrying another uh, Iranian or Iranian American because there's that sense of sort of just shared experience and, and being understood. And which is, which is a little bit of a struggle because you also, you know, I had this struggle for years of at the same time wanting to be American. And so it would be easier to be American if I had you know, married an American and we'd had sort of blended children, (laughs) you know, Uh, but there's just certain things that there's, 
immediate understanding and certain things that you don't really need to even say, you just understand based on sort of mutual uh, experience. And that, you know, the first night that we, you know, he and I really talked was after a medical school party and we, we talked for eight hours and I don't even know what we talked about. Beautiful. So then moving forward, you got married, you had three children, moved to Los Angeles area and you're in Kofangan, which is one of my favorite places, by the way. And then you're in Thailand, in Kofangan, and you get this call. Tell us about the call. Yeah. So, yeah, my husband and I were on a yoga retreat, and it had been a few years since we'd taken a trip without our children. And we also generally have this rule about travel where we try to not go anywhere that requires like a connecting flight. (laughs) We just have this, like, it's much easier to fly direct sort of mentality and rule. And it was five in the morning in Thailand and my cell phone rang and my heart just sank. You know, you just have this feeling like, why am I getting a call from the US at five in the morning? And I think, I don't remember exactly, but I think it came up as like the school, you know, was calling me. And it was the vice principal of the school um, calling to say, you know, my, I had um, at that time two teenagers and a tween calling to let me know. And my parents were staying with the kids that they had had to call my parents to come and pick up my middle child because my middle child had gone to a teacher and said, I don't think um, I'm a boy. I think I'm a girl and I don't know how to tell my parents And because I don't know how to tell my parents this, you know, I've been um, doing some self-harming. Cutting Cutting. himself at the time herself. Yes. Um, And so that was the call I got at 5 a.m. in Thailand. And, you know, we had, she was 13 and a half at that time. And we had never, ever considered even the possibility that she might be trans, you know, she, we didn't think she ever had any signs of being trans. So it was complete shock, denial, grief, lack of sense of control, helplessness, you know, all those things when you're thousands and thousands of miles away and and you get a phone call like that. Yeah. So you came home, talk about how you handled it and how she handled it. Well, I would say I handled it very poorly, which which is part of why I wrote this book. So we we came home, we hugged the kids, we sent uh, the other two upstairs and, you know, we said that we needed to talk to her privately and we sat in the family room and she sat on the family room couch in her ratty t-shirt and shorts with a mass, you know, a messy mop of hair looking 100% like a 13 and a half year old teenage boy and proceeded to give us a dissertation on why she believed that believes that she's a girl and, and, and why she's trans. I couldn't even hear what she was saying. I mean, Once she started talking, it was just like, like, it was like, no, this is not, you know, while we were in Thailand, I had just thought, okay, this is some sort of like mistake confusion thing. Like, I'm going to go, going to hug her, have a little conversation. We're going to like, it's going to be like put behind us. This is like a mistake and I'm going to sort it out, you know? And as she kept talking and insisting it, it was like, I just couldn't even listen to it. And basically said, you're not a girl. 
there's no way you're a girl. I'm your mom. I've known you for, you know, your entire life. I know you better than you know yourself. And you are, you don't just wake up and decide to be trans at 13. And I will get you a therapist to help you figure this out. But there's no way you're a girl. There's no way we're going to take you to start hormones. Nothing is going to happen until you're an adult, but we'll take you to a therapist. And, and how that did she handle that? She completely shut down mm-hmm. and I saw her shut down, but I was so angry that I didn't really, I wasn't really listening to her or seeing her or caring that she shut down. I was incredibly angry. Pario, what was the anger about? Um, I was, well, I didn't think that there was any possibility that she is trans. So I was angry that she was, for whatever reason, feeling the need to get, you know, I thought she's either so depressed or so confused or so desperately needs attention Mm -hmm. that she's decided the answer is to be trans and that I have worked my entire life to give these kids everything And despite that, she is completely confused (laughs) and attention-seeking. And she's had this incredibly easy life with these loving parents who've given her everything. And here she's like pulling a stunt, you know, like this. Mm -hmm. And that made me angry because I didn't believe her, you know. So if there was any part of me that thought it was true, then that would hopefully not have been my reaction. So as a pediatrician, had you had much exposure to particularly trans teens, but uh, trans people uh, at all? Uh, Surprisingly, not really that much, despite, you know, I'd been at that point in practice for 15 years, practicing in Los Angeles for maybe about 10 years or so at that point. And my only really exposure to Trans kid, most of it was through media, very few in patients. And the experience I had in patients were patients who had presented very early in early childhood. Every story I heard in the media was about people who knew and had signs from early childhood. And, you know, specifically asked Ava, is this something you always knew, but you just you know, you just hit it and you didn't tell us. She said, no, I haven't always known. I figured this out in the last six months to a year. And, you know, if she had told me, yeah, I always knew, but I didn't know how to tell you guys, I would have probably, you know, listened, you know, that would have fit more with the narrative of what I thought being, you know, trans would, how it possibly presents. But because she was saying, no, I didn't always knew. I figured this out in the last six months to a year, you know, once my body started going through puberty, I just thought, okay, well, well, then there's, there's no way you just, you know, that this presented this, this late for you. How much do you think your projection of your own being bullied and being an outcast was shaping your response to her? I think a lot, you know, I think when you, have been sort of on the outside, the the last thing you want for your child is to then be the, you know, ultimate outsider. Um, so I was worried that, you know, whether or not this was true, that even if I allowed her to just explore it, that she would get 
you know, bullied, beat up, not have friends, be lonely. And that if it was true, I was really worried that this was something that would limit her life, that she would not have as bright of a future if she was trans, that she wouldn't be able to get as good of a job in the future, that she may have difficulty, you know, finding a partner, that she'd always be discriminated against. And I didn't want anything to, you know, limit her future and and, and her life. So mm-hmm. I had a lot of fear yeah. around the possibility of it being true or letting her even explore it. It's interesting that in the book you talk about, well, it would be okay if she was gay depending on where you are in the United States, which is another thing I'd like to talk about, either one of those could shut down a parents and have them disown their child. I mean, that happens all the time. Yes. Yeah. I think for me being gay was, would be okay because, you know, you don't expect necessarily your child's sexuality to present until later, (laughs) you know, but you, expect their identity and who they are to present, you know, early. So, you know, for somebody who wanted to be a mother so desperately and for whom 90% of her identity was defined by motherhood Mm -hmm. to then feel like I don't even know the identity of my child was something that was really hard for me. You know, I could accept that, you know, we don't necessarily know our children's sexuality and their their sexuality may present later. But the concept that her identity could present later and that I could be completely clueless about her identity then made me question my own identity and validity as a mother, as a pediatrician. And so a lot of it was just, so much of it was about me and not about her. Yeah, Yeah, it was a threat to your personal narrative, your story. Yeah, absolutely. Before we get into the unfolding of the process, talk a little bit to our listeners about the whole trans world, because I think it's many people are really ignorant about it. Like, for instance, you said, because it didn't show up early, you thought it wasn't there. But in fact, there's three, three different levels that are pretty much equal in terms of when someone shows themselves as the opposite gender. But just to inform a little bit, because you've out of this become an advocate for transgender kids, particularly, help us understand what what that's like for people and what they go through and and to try to help people who just can't even understand that that could possibly happen. So one of the things I learned and after once we started to accept and I started, you know, reading and researching and talking to experts is that really gender identity doesn't always emerge in in childhood the way we we think it does, that for about 50% or more of people, that they don't realize that their gender identity doesn't match the one assigned to them at birth based on their genitals, you know, until they start puberty or later. So there's sort of three different times when gender identity emerges. The first is in early childhood from anywhere age three to four to like eight or nine. The second stage is like around peri-puberty and early adolescence, so like 9 to 12, 13 years old. And then the third stage is late adolescence, you know, into adulthood. Mm-hmm. And that for 50%, it's really once their body starts um, going through puberty and changing, that something starts to feel 
wrong and they feel a mismatch between, you know, their body and their identity. Uh, You know, that's really a narrative and a story, you know, and a presentation that I wasn't aware of and that it's such a high number. I mean, you know, 50% is, is, is a lot. And when you think about it, I mean, it does make sense, you know, because before puberty, I mean, all our bodies are, with the exception of just your, your actual genitals, you know, our bodies are more or less the same, you know, and so, so, uh, you know, our upper bodies, you know, are the same, just uh, face, skin, facial structure, body hair, you know, all these other things that change with puberty, you know, they are all the same pre-puberty. So, so it makes sense that for a lot of people, it's not clear in childhood and that there's something wrong doesn't, that feeling doesn't start until their body starts changing. I'm curious about how much the recognition of transgender has happened since, you know, I grew up in the 60s and there wasn't a lot of talk about that. There were certainly people coming out of the closet as gay, but you never heard it. And I'm wondering about, has this always been around and people just suppressed it? I, I know in some indigenous cultures, the person who's the trans is the shaman or the right. medicine person often right. in other indigenous cultures. Yeah. But in the Euro-American culture, mm-hmm. What do you think has happened that suddenly there's seems so many more people showing up as transgender and feeling free to express it to the world? Right. Yeah, I think it it has always been there. Trans people have always been there, mm-hmm. but the majority have suppressed it. And, you know, just like the majority of gay people used to live in, you know, the closet and, you know, gay men would marry women and have children and, you know, gay women would marry men and, you know, have children. And that's changed a lot in the last 20 years. You know, when you see more people coming out, being accepted, living, you know, authentically, but then you also see, you know, a lot of them initially gravitating and, you know, living in certain cities where they were more likely to be accepted and then gradually, you know, filtering in and not feeling like, oh, I have to move to San Francisco or LA or New York to be, you know, gay or live gay. I can like stay in Texas and marry a man and have children, you know, kind of thing. So I think the same thing with being trans, it's always been there, but now particularly with more access to, you know, media and information. I mean, when for my daughter, you know, when she, when her body started to not feel right to her in puberty, she didn't really know that much about what trans and transgender, you know, was um, either. She only knew a little bit about it. And she started Googling body not feeling right with puberty. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, reading and watching YouTube videos of other trans people talk about their experience. And she felt like, oh, that's how I'm feeling, you know? So with with more media and more, you know, it's the YouTube videos didn't turn her trans. She, her body was not feeling right. And she knew something was wrong and she was depressed. And then she found the information that told her what was going on and made her realize that, you know, there is this possibility of, you know, living a different way that feels more, you know, authentic. But if initially 
she didn't feel those things, she wouldn't have Googled those things, you know? So, yeah. yeah. I, I'm really impressed by millennials and post-millennials, particularly about how accepting they are of yes. so many things like this. Yes. And yet then there's the boomer generation I mean, you were so, even though you beat yourself up that you didn't do, you know, you didn't respond in a loving way. You were like, you you were triggered into your own identity, which is totally understandable. But so many places don't have families that that's possible without actually becoming thrown out of the family, being uh, ostracized from the family. And then there's also one of the things that I think I haven't heard anything or read anything you talking about, but you do come from an affluent family. Mm-hmm. You know, you're both doctors. You live in a beautiful area in Los Angeles. There is a difference with the financial situation, but absolutely, I think of a poor person in Topeka, Kansas or something that discovers yes. this. What do you tell them? You know, right. I think that's an I think that's an excellent question because it's true it's for a lot of kids coming out isn't safe there's a lot of kids who come out to their parents and get kicked out of their homes mm-hmm. and get put into foster care trans kids in foster care is a crisis people don't want to foster them and transition is a huge financial burden for so for some families who are supporting their kids financially it's difficult access to a provider that does trans care in you know some areas is difficult so all of these are really real issues that i can't just say oh if you're listening to this and you're trans living at home like come out to your parents because when you live authentically everything gets better i can't you know say that that's that would not be a safe statement for me to make for for a lot of people so i think for for somebody who's listening who lives in an area you know lives in a home where they think it's unsafe to come out to their parents or lives in an area where there isn't access to care all i can would really be able to say is like point them to online resources where they can at least talk to someone you know safely one of the one of the great resources is trans lifeline which is a, you know, hotline that's completely confidential, that's staffed by trans people that, you know, somebody can call and and talk anytime. And the, you know, uh, all the people are trans and they've also been, you know, trained on how to direct someone, you know, in a crisis. So like finding a safe person to talk to and that safe person might be through a hotline, you know, Um, there are, support groups online, like transfamilies.org does uh, support groups that people from anywhere can attend virtually. And they have support groups for parents and they have support groups for kids. So while I in Los Angeles may be able to go to an in-person support group, at least pre-COVID I could, you know, people anywhere can find online, um, you know, support. And there's also organizations that help people with getting insurance coverage for their medical care. So there is help out there. It's hard. It's hard to get things, you know, approved, but there definitely is help out there. But yeah, the first thing is to talk to someone safe. And sometimes that someone safe to talk to might be, you know, a hotline. What would you say to a parent would say, I'd never do that with my daughter or son? I would say... 
Well, don't underestimate your capacity to evolve <laughs> with your child <laughs> because that, you know, I didn't think that I would ever look at my daughter and see her as my daughter. And I absolutely do. And I, I don't look at her and see my, you know, my uh, daughter who used to be my son and is now my daughter. And I don't look at her and see my trans daughter. I just look at her as one of my daughters, you know, so don't underestimate your capacity to evolve. I would say that most likely your child is going to come out and do this. So the question is, are they going to do it when they're at home with you and you can be there and walk them through this and support them? Or are they going to wait until they're an adult to start living their life? Because as an adult, you can get medically, you know, transition, obviously without parent consent. You know, most planned parenthoods in a lot of cities now, planned parenthoods are, are providing free care to uh, trans uh, adults. And some of them might even do 16 and above, but definitely, you know, 18 and above, you can get trans care for free through Planned Parenthood. You can either do this with your kid and be there for them, or they can do this alone as an adult and, and you weren't there to support them through it. And also keep in mind that 43% of trans people who are not supported attempt suicide and that the rate of suicide attempts in transgender teens is three times higher than in cisgender teens. But trans teens who are supported by their families have the same suicide attempt rates as, as cisgender teens. So if you want your child's suicide risk to be three times higher, that's what's gonna happen You know, if you don't support them. You know, I, I know it's incredibly, incredibly difficult because I've been there. And if you read my book, you know, you see um, how devastating it was for me, but you just have to open your heart and your mind. You have to realize that there's a risk of losing your child and your child shouldn't have to wait until they're an adult to start living their life and being who they are. You're such an example of a loving mother. I just am, and, and I'm emphasizing love as the antidote to all of this. And what's important, I think, and why I asked you to talk about your own childhood first is that the only way that we're going to expand as, as humanity is to dissolve the myth of separation. Mm -hmm. And it's the love that you showed in that, that you had to give up your strongly held beliefs and your convictions and your fears. Mm -hmm. And so talk about what you learned about yourself in the process of helping her transition. I learned a lot about uh, myself. Obviously, one, you know, there's all the obvious things on the outside of how I changed. You know, I went from not supporting her to supporting her. I became a, an activist. I uh, started just learning about the medical aspects of, you know, transition and um, doing trans care, you know, in pediatrics. But I think really the other big ways that I changed that relate to my own past is, you know, I carried my insecurities from the past with me for 30 something, you know, years. And I always felt the need to prove my worth as um, an immigrant, you know, in Iranian American, as a brown person, you know, in the US, you know, I always felt the need to 
like prove who I am. And watching Ava so unapologetically be herself and be sure of who she is made me realize that I don't need to, you know, if she doesn't need, you know, if she can just say, this is who I am and I don't need to prove it to you, this is who I am, then certainly in my 40s, I don't need to prove who I am or that I deserve to be here. <laughs> so I was really able to just let go of, of all of that. Yeah. Yeah. I hear the tenderness in that for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's very hard to see a teenager be that strong, that sure um, of who she is and not, uh, you know, change yourself or hold on to your own, you know, insecurity. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, you had another advantage, and that was a supportive family. Talk about the relationship with your sisters, with your mother, and with what you had to learn in putting your mother straight on what was going on. And yeah. that was, that was quite a process also. Yeah. But very uh, yeah. supportive for, for the most part. Yeah, really. I was very lucky in that. I mean, I told my sisters what was going on from the very beginning. And I, I knew they would be completely supportive. I mean, they like me thought, okay, this is probably a teenage, you know, nobody who knew her ever suspected that she was trans. It wasn't like I just had blinders on and I, I hadn't seen the signs. I mean, nobody who knew her and I've asked everybody, you know, ever suspected that she may have a gender identity issue. So, uh, so even though my sisters also thought, oh, this must be some teenage confusion thing, but they were very supportive and, you know, there for me just, you know, day by day, mm. um, supporting me through it. I was really worried about telling my parents and, and particularly my mom. I just thought that she just wouldn't understand it or that she would somehow blame it on my parenting skills or something, you know, because when, when I was in Thailand and they had, uh, the school had called them to pick them uh, to pick Ava up, they hadn't told my parents, you know, why Ava had been self-harming. They had just said, you know, she's been self-harming and, and you need to come and get her. And so they didn't know the reason why she had done it. And so when I finally told my mom, I mean, right away, as soon as I told my mom, her first words were, it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. Mm. And I repeated what I said to make sure that she understood it, you know, because I was like, maybe she didn't hear that right. So I said, Mom, you know, he says he's a girl. He says he wants to wear dresses and makeup and he wants to start taking hormones. It's not about being gay. He says he's a girl. Like I repeated it, you know, so to make sure she heard it. And she just she was like, okay, it's everything's going to be fine. Like, don't worry. Um, and I think she, like me, thought, okay, this is like a phase, but her immediate instinct was to protect me and tell me not to worry. And, and, and she didn't blame me. And she didn't say, this is the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. And, you know, uh, I mean, there were hiccups along the way, but she certainly handled my telling her much better than I handled, you know, Ava coming out to me. Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, let's talk about the process. So we kind of got the playing field here, but then uh, uh, then there's like 
what grade was she in? T- uh, she grade? was in, um, it was the summer before her freshman year of um, co- freshman, uh, high school freshman. when she came okay. out. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, here it is at home. I'm this and you're yeah. grappling with that. And yeah. then she's going to school and talk about that. Well, you know, how that unfolded. Yeah. So, so she started freshman year and, you know, as a boy, she came out to us the, basically the May before freshman year. She started freshman year as a boy, but then throughout her freshman year of high school, she started playing with her, you know, gender uh, expression. And so she started growing out her hair um, and then wearing gender neutral clothing for a while and then moving into wearing dresses while still not being out at school. So she was just this like quirky, sometimes cross-dressing, you know, kid for, for her freshman year. And then sophomore year, you know, at right when freshman year ended, she, she came out to everybody and sophomore year went to school, you know, with the name Ava and, and as a girl. And, you know, during that year where she still really looked like a boy and she was experimenting with, you know, putting on dresses and, and putting on makeup, I had all this fear that she would get, you know, bullied or, um, and it really, it didn't happen because kids today and the youth today are, you know, much better about all of the, this, you know, than we are. I mean, she definitely, there were instances where people said something to, you know, a few things to her, what's wrong with you or, but it was really like a handful of instances. It wasn't like a, you know, daily, daily thing for her. Um, and her friends, some of her friends definitely changed. She lost some friends, but she gained a lot of new friends um, and made more friends and, and is now, you know, happier than she's ever been. It, it's interesting. I was talking to one of my friends last night and she was saying that, you know, she, she read the book and then she told her daughter who's in high school, you know, when I'm done with this book, you know, you should read it. And her daughter said to her, she's like, mom, I don't need to read that book. It's your age that needs to read that book. I don't care, you know? And that's like, that's true, you know? Um, Not true everywhere. You happen to be in Los Angeles, California. Los Angeles, yeah. 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 So she was like, you know, I don't have any interest in reading. It's not, you know, kind of thing. So, yeah. So then, so, so by the end of her freshman year, we, which, which was basically a year after she came out to us, you know, we did end up taking her to uh, the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles uh, Trans Youth Center and um, started the process for um, medical transition. And, um, and now she's a senior in high school and applying to colleges and, um, you know, yeah, it's doing well. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Talk about how you dealt with it, and you're taking your. You were already a runner, but you got to be a more serious runner, I think. Because yeah. if a parent's going through this, it's going to be challenging. It's going to bring up a lot of emotions and uh, identity crisis and all kinds of things. Yeah. So, how did you? take care of yourself. And I know running was one way, but what are the ways that you took care of yourself? Yeah. I mean, I think um, I should have seen a therapist for myself. That's definitely a mistake I made and 
you know, um, ultimately Ava's um, last therapist who we ended up staying with, you know, kept suggested a few times that I see a therapist for myself. And I just said, Oh, I don't have time, you know, for that. And, but I, you know, I run four or five days a week and I can, and that's sort of when I process everything is when I'm, uh, when I'm running. So I continued to run. I did a lot of journaling, um, you know, which, which is included, uh, some of it is included in the book. And I'm not somebody who journals regularly, but while this was happening, I did a lot of journaling, which helped. Uh, I was fortunate in that I had my sisters and my husband and a handful of friends that I had told that I was talking to regularly. I think I didn't I should have still seen a therapist, but I think I didn't need to um, as badly to see a therapist because I did have a a little inner circle that knew everything that was going on and I was talking to them regularly. So I think that combined with the running um, helped. Um, What I did do, which was not good, is that I uh, started drinking a lot more during time, that time period. Um, and there's, there was a point where I recognized that, you know, I love wine. I've always been a wine drinker and I have like you know, not made any apology, <laughs> apologies for wine being sort of one of my passions. But during that time, I recognized that my wine drinking was, you know, turning from passion to, you know, self-medicating. And, you know, so I um, tried to, you know, cut down my drinking once I recognized that it was becoming more of a of self-medicating than something for enjoyment. So that was one way I didn't handle it well. But yeah, I think all of those things, but I really should have seen a therapist. And actually, after I turned in my manuscript and my oldest left for college, so about a year after sort of where the book ends, mm-hmm. I did end up having like a little uh, mini uh, breakdown and ended up seeing a therapist then. Uh huh. Speaking of that, we didn't talk much about uh, the other kids. So mm-hmm. talk about how they handled it. I thought that was really beautiful. Uh, yeah. Can you describe that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, my, so her older brother, Um, she and her older brother, Armand have always been really, really close. And one of the other things I was worried about was that now that they weren't brothers anymore and that they were brother and sister, that their relationship would change or things would change. And really her older brother didn't bat an eye and their relationship didn't change at all. I mean, he was like, and when we kind of had this big family room talk to tell her siblings, her older brother was like, okay, is that it? Like, can the family meeting be over? (laughs) Because, you know, he had figured things out, you know, on his own sort of long before we sat down to have that talk. Um, And my younger uh, daughter, who was at that time around 11 or so, um, she uh, really had like two to three days where it was hard for her. Um, and hard for her in terms of just, she just had this mix of mix of emotions, you know, because she was 11 and although she would watch Ava wear dresses and put on makeup, she just thought that Ava was doing that for fun and didn't realize there was like an underlying gender issue while she, while she was doing it. So, you know, when we told her, you're going to, um, you know, this is what's going on and she's, you know, a girl and we're going to start, you know, calling her by a girl name soon. Um, 
her- As long as it's not Ruby, right? Yes, Lucy, yes. yes. <laughs> or Lucy, I'm sorry. Lucy, Lucy. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, her immediate first reaction was excitement. Like, you mean I'm going to have a sister? Aww. And then within a few seconds, her face changed because then she realized she might be losing a brother and she got tearful. And like, you just saw this wave of emotions. And then really within a minute, like ran over and hugged her and said, you know, I love you. And so- even though she was going through all this where she didn't know how she felt, she within one minute, she knew the right thing to do was to run over and hug her and say, I love you, which was really quite beautiful that she, she knew that no matter what, like that's what she should be doing. Mm. Um, and so she had like a few days where she just was emotional and tearful and was trying to process it all. And, and then she was okay after that. That's so beautiful. Yeah. So you've now become an advocate. And I'm really curious because, you know, part of my wanting to have you on is there's so much divisiveness and so many mm -hmm. people marginalized and um, so much separation and alienation, particularly in the US, which is getting worse and worse, particularly now around the election. Talk about a little bit about how you see uh, that this, this kind of thing could really help people to transcend their limited beliefs and their sense of separation. How, how would you speak to somebody that was just dug in and as a mother though, uh, you know, a mother or a father who had a child like this and was ready to disown them how do you use your advocacy to open up hearts really and, and yeah. get people to, to, you know, you're such a mom to, to, yeah. to mother their children rather than other their children? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things I say is if you, if you support your child and you start to really see them go from depression to thriving, um, that's such a, so powerful, you know? Um, and so I, you just have to really be open to like the possibility and, and to, to listen. I think a lot of times when this happens to, uh, parents, they, you know, mourn, and they think, oh, I'm going to like miss my son. I'm going to miss the relationship I had with my son. And, but the thing is that once you support your child and they become happier, um, your relationship gets so much better. Like Ava and I right now are closer than we've mm. ever been. And our, our relationship is so much better than it's ever been. And Ava and her dad right now, you know, to talk about, so you went from like father, son to father, daughter, but they're so much closer than they ever were because there was always, you know, there was always something with Ava, but you couldn't put a finger on it. And there was always like a little disconnect between Ava and her dad. Um, and, and now that she is, you know, who she is, they're actually so much closer than they've ever been because Ava's, you know, happy and confident. And so you, you think you're going to lose a lot of it is about like 
this relationship you think you're going to lose or this child you think you're going to lose or mourning, you know, all these things that you think you're going to lose. But once you support your kid and they're being their authentic self, your relationship gets so much better. You really do. You really do gain. You don't, you know, you don't lose. Whereas if you stay stuck where you are, your relationship with your kid is just going to get worse and worse. And, you know, you're potentially just going to lose it altogether. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you just, it's really hard. I mean, but I think people just need to watch that. Um, And I think, yeah, you're right with something like this, you know, this isn't a, a Republican or Democrat, or, you know, this is just a, you know, a human issue. I mean, this happens in Republican families as much as it happens in, you know, Democrat families as, as, you know, in any, you know, it has nothing to do with religion or politics or, or race. Um, But uh, it's something that I think just, there needs to be more stories and more exposure so that, you know, we fear what we don't know. So if we, hear more stories and know it better. And it sort of becomes, you know, normalized. um, Then we have a better chance of just Mm -hmm. accepting it. We just have to, you know, share and share and share until it becomes normalized for everybody. I think, you know, Paria, one of the things that most inspired me about you is your willingness to be inspired by her courage. And I think that, um, you know, I mean, back in the 60s, when I had friends coming out of the closet, you know, and pronouncing themselves as gay, um, the courage it took for them to tell their parents or their family. Mm-hmm. And um, I think a lot of parents don't get how hard that is. And you were able to actually be transformed and inspired by her courage of, you know, this is how it is. I'm going to stand because this is what, what I am. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I didn't, I didn't see her courage in the initial phase when I was too like angry, basically (laughs) angry. And then in, you know, grief, but once I started to accept it and then I just realized how brave, you know, every day walking out the door in a dress for her, was an, is an act of bravery and courage, you know, mm-hmm. um, especially during this, you know, like right now she, she looks a lot different than, than she did when this first happened because she's been on hormones for a couple of years now and, you know, grown out her hair and, and, and done other, you know, things, um, that make her present much more, uh, feminine. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but especially in that, in that uh, initial part, I mean, every day stepping out of the house, um, you know, wearing, wearing a dress or feminine clothing was, you know, an act of bravery and courage. And I just thought, gosh, I mean, how I could never have done something like that in high school. I, I mean, all I wanted to do was like hide in a corner and not be seen and not draw any attention to myself until I could get home and be safe. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, but yet she just put herself out there like day after day after day. And, you know, during that first year, I mean, every time I walked with her, if we're walking in a mall, we go to a restaurant. I mean, people, we turned heads like she, you know, not me obviously, mm-hmm. but, 
people would just, you know, or they would just look and then take like another look, like, is that what I just, I just saw a trans person or, you know, something, you know, registered. Um, and to just be constantly looked at and evaluated and sized up um, and questioned about who you are every day and to see somebody say, despite being sized up every day, this is who I need to be, makes you realize how, how much they can't live as this other thing they're not. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, you're an inspiration. And uh, Paria Hasuri, I just am um, so grateful for you to take the time to be with us. Again, your book is Found in Transition, A Mother's Evolution During Her Child's Gender Change. Uh, tell people your website so they can find out more uh, on your website. Uh, yeah, my website is pariahasuri.com. And uh, on there, I share, share you know, the articles I've written. I uh, periodically put out a newsletter with sort of what podcasts I've done. Um, there's, um, yeah, just, uh, there's also some, you know, resources and other information on there. And there's also links to my socials, my Instagram and Twitter. Um, and there, I also have a contact us um, uh, slot on my website. And so far I have answered every email that comes to me through the, through the contact <laughs> us. So, um, and I've had a lot of parents reach out to me through that. So, um, which has been really really um, incredibly rewarding. Well, thank you and blessings to your family and thank you for the beautiful work you're doing and your writing is absolutely wonderful. I highly recommend uh, your, your book. So thank you for being on uh, We Earth Radio. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.